Hey, square. I am not a square. I think we should invite Greg this weekend. What's this weekend? These people are hippies, rebels against old-fashioned authority. I think these kids need help. What they need is a bath. You're passing judgment on people you know nothing about. Maybe that's why your church is so empty. When God walks in here, brings me a hippie. I'll ask him what it's all about, because I do not understand. This house has a very good vibe. There is an entire generation searching. Slow down, man, slow down. Just in all the wrong places. If you want to reach my people, you need to speak to them in a language they understand. If I bring them in, I'm going to lose my job. We can only walk through doors open to us. In your church, that's a door that's shut. You've probably noticed we have some guests here today. I'd like you to meet my new friends. Welcome. They don't belong here. Half of them aren't even wearing shoes. They're staining the new shag carpet. They need our help. If you feel like you're misunderstood and judged, you will find forgiveness and freedom right here. That was awesome. Now that door is open any time of day. And if there are some who don't like that, well then that door works both ways. All right, Pastor, let's begin. I was almost done with this. But then you did what nobody else would even dare. This thing that we found, I feel like I belong. You're gonna need a bigger church. Our country is a dark and divided place, but now there's hope and it's spreading. This is your home, and I want you to tell all your friends about it. Good morning, good morning. Welcome back, uh, LifePoint family. Uh, guests, if, you're, if this is your first time here, I just want to say welcome. We're gr- glad that you're here. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here, and this resource is for you. So before we get into the message, uh, take a moment and uh, go to lpguest.com. The QR code's on the chairs in front of you. We'll take you there, or you can just type it in. But all the message notes, the scripture passages for this morning will be up uh, on the screens, but also at lpguest.com, uh, LifePoint Family, all that's in the LifePoint Ohio app. But guests, one thing I would ask of you, if you'd take just 60 to 90 90 seconds to fill out the guest information card that's there at lpguest.com. I would love to hear back from you. We would love to hear back from you just to get your feedback on the morning. We hope that resource is helpful for you uh, throughout our time together. Uh, let me explain a little bit about Now Playing for those of us who are new. LifePoint family, you obviously know, and uh, I think we enjoy this time uh, together, but every year for many, many years now, we've gone, gone to the movies together in a sense for four weeks or so where we uh, go, we highlight a film from the last year, and we talk about from that film, we, we use the film as a launching point into the scriptures. We always teach through the Bible and preach the gospel here. That's really a value for us, and we use these uh, movies is really an opportunity to kind of hit something culturally and then uh, address that from the scriptures. And to my knowledge, uh, I think this is the first time we've ever done a Christian film with the Jesus Revolution, but most of the time what we're doing is, is talking through, hey, movies always are portraying or communicating a message. Entertainment, as we said last week, is not just entertainment. And I think I used the illustration last week that one of our pastors, I just love it. He said, man, it's like the Trojan horse from Greek mythology, where uh, the Greeks bring this Trojan horse and they give it to the Trojans and they 
pretend to retreat, and uh, the Trojans bring the horse inside, only little do they know, once they close the gates and they go to bed that night, inside of the Trojan horse are the Greek soldiers who then come out and open the gates and let the rest of the Greek army in. And one of our pastors said, you know, movies and entertainment are kind of like that. It's this Trojan horse that's presented as if it's a gift always, but we need to be asking the question, hey, what's inside? What are we bringing into our homes? What are we bringing into our minds? What are we feeding our imaginations? Is it helpful? Is it good? And certainly doesn't mean we only watch Christian entertainment, but it does mean as Christians, as we consume entertainment, we want to be discerning and wise about, hey, what is this communicating? Is it helpful? Is it good? Does it help me grow in my relationship with Jesus? Or is it maybe even destructive to my heart and to my mind and to my soul. Well, here in the Jesus Revolution, if you saw the movie, you'll know this all, but let me give a brief summary for those who haven't. The Jesus Revolution, based on a book, uh, but is telling, in some ways, the the true story of something that was called the Jesus Movement. took place long before my time, but the 1960s and 70s uh, started out on the West Coast, but had a much broader national impact from there. It was a big focus on reaching the next generation, breaking down barriers, bringing the love of Christ to the lost and to the the least, and certainly a particular focus, especially out on the West Coast, on reaching uh, hippies. Today, there are whole Christian denominations and ministries that have their roots in the Jesus movement. I know of at least one person in this church who gave their life to Christ during the Jesus movement and came in the ministry that came out of the Jesus movement. And so the film centers on a few characters, not the a whole movement, but really telling the story of the movement through a few characters. And that's Greg and Kathy Laurie, uh, the young couple that you saw kind of tells their love story. Greg got saved as a teenager in the context of the Jesus movement and then went on to found, uh, I think it's Harvest Christian Fellowship. So Greg Laurie now leads, still today, leads Harvest Christian Fellowship, which is a whole network of churches. Chuck Smith the older pastor in the film who, according to the film, in the late 1960s, his church was dwindling down to just a few folks, but he had this major change of heart when he met Lonnie Frisbee, who is the hippie who opens the door, right? Also uh, Jesus from The Chosen, right? But he opens the door and says, you know, this this house has a very nice vibe. And Lonnie is a real person, real evangelist. And as he meets Lonnie, They begin a ministry together and God through them starts this movement that results in a ton of young people coming to faith in Christ and eventually the founding of Calvary Chapel that Chuck Smith led for decades, which also was a whole network of churches still in existence today. But here's the thing. It's a great film. Honestly, I would encourage you to watch it. The story is not about Chuck Smith or Lonnie Frisbee or Greg Laurie. If you look at any of those three men or the ministries that two of them, right, went on to lead and found very large churches and whole networks of churches, but if you look at those churches and you look at those men, you will find flaws, you will find failures, and you'll find things to criticize. Lonnie Frisbee, in the years after this film, in the decades after, had a time of falling away from the Lord, his marriage fell apart living in immorality. It was only towards the very end of his life that he repented and returned to Christ. So the film is not about any one of them. In fact, Greg Laurie, in an interview, I thought said it so well. He said, the film's not about Chuck or Lonnie or me. It's about God using broken people in the Jesus movement. It's about God using 
ordinary people to do extraordinary things, using very unlikely people to do something incredible in this move of the Holy Spirit. And as I listened to him say that, I thought, man, that, that's something we have said over and over and over here. If you've been here for any length of time, we've said that exact phrase, God doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. And, and you say, why is that important? I, I think in some ways that's, that's just a big picture takeaway from the film. If you're here today and you feel like, I, I feel too damaged, too broken, too stained as we talked last week to really be used by God. I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like I'm qualified enough. You should take heart and celebrate that all through the scriptures and all through the pages of history, God uses people just like you and me to do extraordinary things. He can and will use you if you will say, Lord, here I am. Send me. If God only used perfect or well-qualified people, he would not use any of us. Quite the contrary. He uses some of the most unlikely people to do some extraordinary things because in so doing, it doesn't highlight those people. It highlights the Lord. So that's a big picture takeaway, but I want us to chase down another thread this morning. One of the main really themes of the film is this shift, this movement from annoyance and judgment particularly on the part of Chuck Smith, right? Uh, annoyance and judgment towards those who aren't following Jesus, in particular towards hippies, to compassion and love. This shift from annoyance and judgment to compassion and love. So here's the thing. Um, if, I were to, if I were to ask the question, for those of us who know Christ, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we're thrilled that you're here. <laughs> thrilled you're here. And I think if I were to ask all of us who know Jesus and love him, hey, do you want to see people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus? I think all of us would be like, yes. And if I were to then say, do you want God to use you to reach people who don't know Jesus? I think all of us would say, yes. And then if we were to dig one layer deeper and say, okay, what is your heart attitude towards people who are lost? What is your heart? When I say lost, by the way, if you're not here, not a Christian, we would say, all of us are lost and then found in Christ, right? Lost meaning, hey, you don't know Jesus. You're, out, you're still out there trying to do life on your own, trying to save yourself, trying to make up for it yourself. And for those of us who know Jesus, if I were to say, what's your heart attitude and disposition towards those who are lost, toward those who are not like you, towards those who are far from Christ? Suddenly, right, things get a little more complex, there might be certain groups of people that we say, man, I so want them to know Jesus. And then other groups of people where you're like, honestly, Kale, I'm just mad. <laughs> I'm angry or I'm annoyed at what they're doing or what they're teaching. And this is the shift, right? So we're going to talk about this morning. There's a real tension here. Chuck Smith in the film wants to be used by God. And one of the chief things that has to change in his heart and in his life is at least it's, as the way it's portrayed in the film is how he views these young people and these hippies, and it's this shift from just annoyance and judgment, they're ruining the country, <laughs> to compassion and love, this we need to reach them with the gospel. And there are dozens of passages we could look at, just even from the gospels, let alone the whole Old Testament and New Testament, but I'm going to take us to Luke chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to take head on this tension grace and truth. The early church, uh, I was reading this week as I was studying for Luke 5, 
One of the commentators said the early church was actually known for and at times criticized for ministering to outcasts, to the lost, to the least, ministering and running after those who were considered unclean and unimportant and untouchable to sort of powerful and proper society. And it seems like Luke in some ways is almost offering an explanation of, uh, hey, why is it you Christians seem to be so intent on reaching those people? Why are you Christians so intent on reaching people who are, right, the untouchables of culture? And in Luke chapter 5 and through much of the book of Luke, Luke almost seems to give us an apologetic for that. And his answer is, well, because that's what Christ did. (laughs) That's what we see Jesus doing. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he records Jesus as saying, Jesus, his his own words about what his mission statement is, what is, what he came for. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save lost. And here in Luke chapter 5, let me give you the context here. Jesus has just called fishermen to be his first disciples, which that in and of itself is just amazing. When you, I mean, if you were thinking about writing, how will the Son of God come down to earth? And then what kind of team will he assemble? When Jesus is like, guys, I'm putting together a team, right? And, and this team is going to be the guys who carry on the ministry after me and start a global worldwide movement for discipleship. I mean, it'd be like him coming today and we're like, Jesus, who are you going to pick? And he's like, I don't know. Where's the nearest Bass Pro Shop, right? I'm going <laughs> to pick those guys. It just makes no sense. But it's not about those guys. It's about what Christ is doing. So he chooses these fishermen to be his disciples, the first ones. Then he heals a man with leprosy. This is all in Luke 5. Then he heals a man with leprosy, which again is stunning because in their culture, leprosy, the skin condition, made you unclean and anyone you touched then became unclean. And instead, Jesus touches him and he becomes clean, showing Jesus has the power to heal and to renew. Then Jesus heals a paralytic right? A paralyzed man. But more than that, he shows he's got the power to heal again, but he tells him, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders around him are like, only God can forgive sin. And that's that's the point. (laughs) Jesus is showing, hey, I have the authority to forgive sin. So in that context, this is what happens next. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Levi is also Matthew, right? So I don't know why everyone has two names, right, in the Bible. Many of them do at least. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now in the book of Luke, something to notice, right? If you want to circle follow me. Follow me is not just an invitation to physically get up and walk after Jesus. Follow me in the book of Luke is a call to discipleship. Follow me is this call to not just physically leave everything behind, but metaphorically. Like you, you're going to leave that behind. The old life is now behind you and the new life is following Christ. That's a great picture of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just a set of beliefs that we hold. Certainly it is that, that Jesus is the Son of God who came down, lived a perfect life in our place, died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again that we might have new life in Him if we will turn from sin and trust Him. But it's also a lifestyle. It's turning away, right, from the old way of living and following Jesus. 
And so Jesus is now called not just fishermen, hey, come be my disciples, but now this tax collector. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. Verse 29, Levi got up, followed him, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And we're going to pause there and unpack that for a little while because to understand the significance of what just happened and the significance of that question, we have to understand a few things. First, let's talk about the Pharisees. And if you're here today, right, some of you are new and you're like, what are Pharisees? And some of us, you've been in church all your life or in the faith all your life and I will still say, just going over this again was helpful for me. So stick with me, right? The Pharisees are the religious leaders at the time. They're the leaders of the local synagogues, which basically is like Jewish church, right? And they're very conservative in their theology, which is not a bad thing. In fact, I think that's a good thing in the sense that they want to be faithful to the text. We want to be faithful to the scriptures. But here's what's happened. Over time, they begin majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. And they study the whole Old Testament, but somehow they miss that part about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And they begin majoring in the rules, and they become rule-obsessed, and it's all about how do we follow all of the rules such that they forget how to love people entirely. And honestly, this is something that challenges me personally as a student of the word and should challenge any of us who are here and you're like, man, I love the word. I love studying the word. These guys knew the word. <laughs> they, they knew their Bibles. They had the Old Testament. That's all they had. That was their Bible. And they knew it backwards and forwards. They memorized vast portions of it. And when the, yet, when the Bible put on flesh, when the word became flesh and became a human and stood in front of them, they couldn't recognize him. Think about that for a second. That challenges me. <laughs> it should challenge you. They knew the word, but when the word put on flesh, they couldn't recognize him. Because as they studied, and as, it wasn't to know God. They didn't go to, Jesus told them, you guys study the scriptures, but the scriptures point towards me. And they weren't studying to know the Lord and to love him more. They were studying for more information, more ammunition, and more how do we follow the rules. And they became hypocrites. And they loved money. And they were obsessed with following the rules. And they had forgotten how to show love or grace or mercy. Frankly, because I don't think they had ever really, most of them experienced that in their own lives. And they, they go out and they, they grumble and they complain about Jesus spending time because of that kind of heart disposition and attitude, they see Jesus spending time with these tax collectors and sinners, and they just can't understand it. And, and it's not just that he's spending time with them. This is, a, this is another thing culturally to understand. When you ate with someone, it indicated this. I mean, we're spending time in friendship. When you go into someone's home and their culture at this time, that indicated, right, it's not just like we're hanging out, talking, having a casual conversation on the street. This is, I am going and I'm sitting with them. And it's not, it's not Jesus saying, I accept and condone everything that you do. That's not it. We'll talk about that tension. But it is this, I love you. 
and I'm coming for you, and I want to see you saved, and I'm spending time with you. And he's doing that specifically with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees just can't understand that. And we need to understand, well, why, why is it so significant, tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were considered traitors in Jewish culture. About 100 years before, the Roman military had come in and conquered the Jewish nation. The Jews had just gotten their freedom for a little while from a bunch of other dynasties. And then the Romans come in, take over, set up a pretty repressive regime. And the tax collectors were Jewish citizens who volunteered to work for the Roman government and collect taxes from their Jewish neighbors. So I've tried all week to think about how do I explain how tension-filled, how animosity-driven this was. It would be a little bit like, imagine a foreign nation invades America this year, overthrows the government, takes control of the military, and then sets up a pretty repressive regime and curtails our freedoms, and then says, hey, we're hiring. <laughs> and some of us are like, I'll work for you right? They've got great dental vision, right? 401k. I guess great. My guess is that would create some tension <laughs> in the room. We're all sitting together and looking over and you're like, right? You, right? You work for them. This is what it felt like, only far worse. They were not allowed to serve, tax collectors were not allowed to serve as judges or even witnesses in court. They were expelled from the local synagogue. You're not allowed to be in church, because you work for Rome. In the eyes of the Jewish community, their disgrace extended even to their families. You, your wife, your children, whole family disgraced. And it was just assumed. They had such a bad reputation. It was assumed that they were taking more money than they should be. It's actually comical. Luke chapter 3, everybody's coming to John the Baptist, and they're like, hey, how do we get our lives right? What do we need to do? And when the tax collectors come to John the Baptist, he's like, you guys should stop collecting more money than you should. <laughs> they don't even offer that information. That's what's so great about it. They're like, hey, John, what should we do? And John's like, you know what you're doing. That's how bad of a reputation they have. He just assumes, right? D dishonesty is the rule. Honesty is the exception. Which maybe helps us understand a little bit why the Pharisees are stepping back going, what the heck? Why are you having... Those guys? And then sinners. Sinners, we hear that and go, I mean, everybody's a sinner. Yeah, but this was like a special category they had. In the Jewish culture, they had people that they labeled publicly sinners, and that was tax collectors, adulterers and prostitutes, and criminals. So the righteous people, quote-unquote righteous people, the Pharisees, had this other group of people or these certain groups of people that they labeled, hey, you publicly are not following the law of Moses, therefore you are sinners. And it's these people that are, that are coming around Jesus and Jesus is sitting down with them and saying, hey, let's eat together. Let's talk. And the Pharisees cannot understand it. The, the religious leaders can't, they can't get past that. If it were the 20, honestly, I'm trying to say, what would this, if it were the 21st century, they'd be on Instagram, blog sites, TikTok, Facebook, X, and they'd be blowing Jesus up. <laughs> Someone would have snapped a photo of him, right? Made sure there was some alcohol in the scene, and then the title would have been like, Jesus the Drunk, right? And they'd be murdering him and canceling him on social media right now. If this were transported to today, that's what would be happening. But they don't have any of that. So what they do is they stand outside and they grumble and they complain to the disciples and say, what the heck? 
Why are you guys, why is Jesus, why are you associating with these people? And Jesus' response, it is so good, it's so nuanced, right? This is where embracing that tension, right? It's so nuanced. He doesn't say, because sin is no big deal, guys. What the world's wrong with you? Just love everybody. Give them a hug, right? It's all good. Nor does he say, you're right, they're bad people, and we should not talk to them. (laughs) This is what he says. Look at Luke 5, verse 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, guys, who is it that calls a doctor? And they're like, sick people. Exactly. Sick people need a doctor. So Jesus is acknowledging, right? Yes, there's a problem here. But what you guys have missed is you're just looking at the problem and saying, well, they're bad people and we need to not associate with them. Jesus says, no, that's why I came. I'm the doctor and I need to go to those who are sick. He says, I came to call sinners. In fact, that's the next point there. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And note there's two aspects. There are two parts to this, right? Jesus says, I love them. I came to call them. I came for sinners. Jesus loves those who are broken and is calling them back. He loves them. And at the same time, he acknowledges, yeah, there's a real problem. I came to call sinners to what? Repentance. And repentance means a change of mind that leads to a change of life or lifestyle. A change of heart and mind that leads to a change of life and lifestyle. And that, just that mere statement Jesus came to call sinners to repentance has enormous implications for you and for me as Jesus' followers. And I'm going to boil it down to just, just two. You say, what, is that, what does that mean for you and for me? If we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to be like him, we need to hold these two things in tension. We need to have compassion for the lost and a passion for the truth. Compassion for the lost and a passion for the truth And we need to refuse to let go of either of those and instead in Christ-likeness grow into both. Let's talk about compassion for the lost for a minute. Why do we have compassion for the lost? Why should our hearts break for those who are far from Christ and who are running hard into things that are terrible for them, maybe even teaching that to others? Why should our hearts say, Lord, I want to see them turn? Because that's the way Jesus was. That's the heart of our Savior, because Jesus had compassion on the lost. I came to call sinners to repentance, Jesus said. I came for the sick. I came for the lost. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories that have nearly the identical point. The story of the lost coin, the story of the lost sheep, and the story of the prodigal son. When Jesus tells three stories with nearly the same point, that tells you something. He's communicating something really important. And all of them have nearly the same point. And he's like, guys, all of heaven breaks out in celebration when one sinner turns and comes home. Uh, We should celebrate that as well. Compassion for the lost. Just to put this on the ground level, if you're here today, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to me too. If we don't have a genuine heartfelt compassion and brokenheartedness for those that in our lives and in our culture that we see who are just lost, 
if we don't love them and say, Lord, I may not like it all. I may hate what they're teaching, what they're saying, what they're doing. But God, if I don't have a broken heartedness for them and want to see them come and know Christ, then we're not being Christ-like. And that's an opportunity for us to repent and say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for my attitude. I know I've, I've looked inside sometimes some of the things I've said, some of the things I've felt and thought, Lord, that sounds and seems way too much like a Pharisee. Maybe you're in that same place and it's an opportunity for repentance today to say, God, forgive me. I, my heart needs to break for what breaks yours. Secondly, we should, we should have compassion for the lost. One, because that's the heart of our Savior. Two, because we were lost, <laughs> right? We sing that song, I once was lost, but now I'm found. We are no better than anyone else. We were lost and we have been found only because of the grace and the mercy and the love of our Savior, Jesus, who shed his blood at the cross to wash us clean. And so us turning around and being like, man, I hate those people. That would be like a bunch of people being lost in the woods. Like you're lost in the woods or I'm lost in the woods. And then a park ranger comes and, and helps me get rescued, right? And then as soon as I'm out of the woods, I look back at everyone else lost in the woods. I'm like, idiots, right? What's wrong with them? It's like, wait a second, right? That was me five minutes ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever it is. May we never lose the wonder of the mercy of God on our lives. And always look back at those lost saying, God, send me. I'll go. And I'll tell them what you've done. Bring them home, please. Compassion for the lost. Now, here, here's the tension, right? Those of us who are a little more, right? Some of us lean the way of grace. We're like, yes, right? Preach it. And then some of us lean the way of truth. And you're like, yo, what about all the crazy, wicked stuff that people are teaching and saying? What about the ways in which sin is being celebrated in so many ways? Does that just not matter at all? No, it does. That's where the passion for the truth a compassion for the lost and a passion for the truth. Jesus says what? I came to call sinners to repentance. Yes, there needs to be change. Yes, there are things that are wrong. And we need to confront that lovingly, but from a position of humility and compassion. And this is what's so challenging. Honestly, I don't, I'm sure it's probably always been a challenge. I think it always has. Studying church history seems like it's a major area of tension and desperately needed nuance in our time and in our culture because there's such a strong tendency to just lean one way or the other so hard. I watch it all the time. You probably do too, where on the one hand, it's this tendency to be like, no, just grace and mercy and love. All Jesus wanted to do is just give people a hug and tell them they're awesome. And then on this side, it's no, 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 truth, right? Like, dang it, you tell people what's up. That's what you do. One pastor friend of mine who discipled me said, Kale, he said, everybody's got a natural lean. And I use the terms, some of us tend towards crushers and some of us towards coddlers. Some of us coddle, some of us crush. We've used the terms, right? The pillow and the boot. <laughs> some of us are like, I just love being a pillow, right? You come cry on my shoulder, buddy. Others of us are like, I tend to be the boot, right? Just tell you what's up and what you need to hear. And here's the reality. Neither one of those are wrong, but we desperately need to hold on to both and hold them in tension. John chapter one, verse 14. John says this, and the word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son, as of the only son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus holds these things beautifully and perfectly in tension. Grace when it's needed, truth when it's needed, both when they're needed, holding them in tension. None of us are going to do that perfectly because we're not Jesus. A good starting place is to look at your own life and say, which way do I lean? <laughs> Some of us this morning is like, man, you are incredibly gracious. But the goal in the Christian life is to grow in Christ's likeness. And you might need to ask this morning and repent, Lord, forgive me. I, I love sinners. I just don't call anyone to repentance over anything. And that's an opportunity for repentance. Others of us, you are truth. I mean, you passion for the truth. Praise God. But some of us have done that in a way that we've become angry, judgmental, crushing people. I'm always willing to tell them what they need to be, what they need to hear, but lacking in grace or compassion or love such that that's an opportunity for repentance this morning to say, Lord, the goal in the Christian life is that I become more like you. Father, will you help me? And this is the last thing I'll say here, and then we're going to take some time to pray. We need each other. We need to recognize how much we need each other. And when I say we need each other, you might even write in there, we need each other and we need to be kind and patient with one another. Because right now what I see in our culture is the tendency to just find your camp and then stay there. Truth people cluster up over here. Grace people cluster up over here and never the two shall meet. Let's just lodge bombs back at each other. That's, uh, man, maybe this is wrong. That's dumb and unhelpful and not Christ-like. We need each other together, leaning into one another, sharpening one another, being in groups together, being a church together, helping one another, being patient with one another. Together, we become more like Christ. And frankly, our witness to the world around us is so much more powerful when we are patient and kind with one another and we lean in towards one another and we help one another, we don't assume the worst of one another because what good does it do when somebody who doesn't love Jesus looks at all of us who love Jesus and they're like, man, they're just as mean towards each other as the rest of us. But if they look at us and say, man, they seem to really disagree and they're passionate about that, but they do it in kindness and in love, bearing with one another considering others before themselves. Church, if we'll lean into this, if we will pray and say, Father, please help us to grow full of grace, full of truth. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us not to assume the worst of one another. Help us to be kind in our words towards each other. And God, help us to grow in Christ-likeness, full of grace and truth, compassion for the lost, passion for the truth, that's potent. It's powerful. And I believe God can use that and us, broken as we are, to reach people for the sake of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going I'm to close this out in prayer. And as we pray, I'm going to put two things on the screen. John, if you'll go ahead and just bring those up now. These are the two things I want us to pray around. An opportunity for repentance and then just asking for God to move. And as we pray, right, you Pray how you want. You sit in your chair. You can get on your knees. You can get up and walk around if you want. I don't care. But as we pray, for some of us, that opportunity for repentance, some of us, you're here today and 
Like maybe today is the day you're crossing the threshold of faith. We, we are celebrating right now. I don't know that I've ever seen as much of God's activity in the context of our church. We're celebrating and I'm asking God, just keep it going, Lord, please. Maybe you've come from the place where you're like, man, I, I haven't known Jesus and now I want to walk with him. You've heard that call, follow me and you want to start. Today's an opportunity for you to just turn from sin and trust him with your life. For those of us who know and love Jesus, maybe some of us, it's that, Lord, I have had a passion for the truth, but not much compassion for the lost. Help me grow in that. Some of us today, an opportunity for repentance. Lord, I have had a compassion for the lost, but I lack boldness and passion for the truth. Help me grow in that. Take that time just to look at your own heart and say, Lord, search me and repent. And then secondly, let's ask God to move. Will you join me in that? I, this, this film is ultimately about a move of the Holy Spirit during a time in which the country, <laughs> rapid technological change, lots of social division, and not just between left and right, but up and down between generations, the old and the young. I don't know about you, that sounds strangely familiar. <laughs> Let's pray, God, will you use us? Will you move in a powerful way? Will you draw tons of people to yourselves? And here we are. Use us to build your kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we take just a moment. And Father, first, um, we take just an opportunity for repentance here. God, you see us and you know us. You know where we struggle. You know where we fail. You know what needs to change in our hearts. Do that. Change us. I want to give you just a moment to pray. You let the Lord lead. And you speak to him whatever he convicts in your mind and heart. do ask your forgiveness. It's so easy, Lord. And I say it personally, it is so easy to lose sight of what is important. Father, we live in a culture that lacks nuance, lacks the willingness to listen so often. You call us to be different. Help us in this. Help us to show our community what that looks like. Teach us, Father, how to love one another deeply from the heart, to be patient and kind with one another, putting on Christ. And Father, unashamedly, we ask you to move. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us and through us. God, we beg and we plead with you 
to move in our city, to move in our state and across the nation and around the world. Will you draw many people to yourself? And God, we say, here we are. Use us in all of our brokenness, in all of our failures. God, will you, will you use us? We're available and we want to be used by you for the sake of your kingdom. So we ask that you'd move and that you and you alone would get the glory. Father, we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.